So in previous weeks, we were having issues because our soundboard was failing us, and so we would get up here and really not have a clue what it's going to do, which is always a great feeling. But uh, now we've replaced it with a new one, and we just have to get it all dialed in and figured out. And so patience is appreciated. Any comments can be sent care of Bob Ulrich, and he will respond in a timely manner. I'm just kidding. I appreciate you, Bob. Um, I, I read a statistic recently that, uh, that 69 million people in our country were separated from their jobs in uh, 2021. And so that, that, uh, that phrase, being separated from your job, it's a term used to encompass really everything from, uh, from quitting to being laid off, being fired, um, retiring, basically any reason that you would no longer hold the job that you once did. So 69 million people in our country were separated from their jobs in 2021. That's a pretty staggering amount of people when you think about it. Uh, I, I didn't look up what percentage of the workforce that is, but, but it's got to be quite a bit. Um, and, and to be sure, a chunk of those 69 million people, um, they, they were either retiring or, or, or taking a, a, an extended leave of absence from the workforce for one reason or another. But for the majority of people in that group, a, a separation from their current job meant that they either already had or, or soon would be looking for a new job. And when searching for a new job, many times an essential task to complete is the forming or the updating of a resume. And, and even if we don't know the, the ins and outs of successful resume creation, we probably know enough to recognize that, that in addition to resumes communicating our past work experience, they're also meant to promote the good skills, the good qualities that we possess as an individual. So I might, uh, uh, I might make myself look valuable by highlighting my ability to work well with others. might put that on my resume. Uh, I'm probably not going to mention on my resume my tendency to get angry quickly when someone steals my Hot Pocket from the break room. I probably won't put that on there, but, but I can get along well with others. Or, or I might, might highlight the ease with which I can learn a new computer system. I'm not going to put on there I got locked out of my phone three times last month. We, 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 just, we recognize this. We, we use resumes to present ourselves in the best possible light, in order to communicate our merit, our, our deservedness for this job opening. Not such a bad way, really, to gain entrance into a new company. Um, it is a bad way to attempt to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. Those two are not, not one in the same. Can you imagine putting together a resume to give to God in order to convince him to allow you to enter his kingdom? And as crazy as that might seem, it's probably not as uncommon as we might assume. And I, I think it was common enough that, that Jesus found it necessary to engage this topic in Luke chapter 18. So in today's passage, we're going to see, we're going to see two people who had stellar resumes that, uh, that, that would have impressed anyone who looked at them. And we'll also see two other people who had very weak resumes that probably would have been easy to just throw into the trash can. And yet, as you might be able to guess, Jesus left his hearers shocked 
when he proclaimed which two would actually enter the kingdom and which two would be left on the outside. So, so as we go through our passage this morning, we're going to be confronted with four, four types, four groups of people. Pharisees, tax collectors, children, and rich people. Now, now all four of these groups we've, we've already seen in Luke's gospel, every one of them so far. And because we've seen these groups in Luke's gospel, and because we've seen them interact with Jesus already, you can probably already tell me which two will be shown in a positive light and which two in a negative light. You don't even have to look at your sermon notes for that. I'm, I'm sure you can already, already tell there. And, and so, as a result, it might be easy to gloss over the statements that Jesus is going to make in today's text. Uh, it might be easy to miss the shock which the original hearers would have felt when Jesus was speaking. And so, so my hope is to fight against that tendency this morning so that, that the message of Jesus can, can hit us and sink deep into our hearts. Because if we hear today's message correctly, it ought to really challenge us. So, so let's take a look at the, the first story. The first story uh, will be starting in, in Luke 18, verse 9. First story is a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And, and in order to kind of help drive this story home, I, I want to quickly remind ourselves about these two groups of people. Uh, Pharisees, highly respected in Jewish society. I, I know we might think of them as kind of the bad guys, but they were highly respected in Jewish society. If you read uh, Josephus, who was a, a first century Jewish historian, he writes that Pharisees were known for surpassing the others in the observance of piety and exact interpretation of the laws. And so because of that, many people looked up to the Pharisees. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were a group of people who many considered to be traitors. So when the Romans took control of an area and they imposed heavy taxes on the locals, they, they contracted local residents to do the work of collecting those taxes from their own people. And not only then were the Jews that were doing that collaborating with the enemy, but they were also often getting rich by extorting their own, their own people. So they were seen as crooks. They were seen as the scum of society. Um, I, when I think about uh, the TV series, The Chosen, I don't know how many uh, of you here have, have been engaging and watching the first two seasons of that, but uh, if you've not seen it, The Chosen is a, it's a TV series which portrays the earthly ministry of Jesus from the perspective of the disciples. Um, and so it includes stories that you see in the Bible, but it also takes some liberty uh, to imagine what things might have been like based upon other historical counts of accounts of the first century in Israel. And so uh, the reason I bring that up is because one of the things that I think The Chosen does really well is portray the relational dynamics that may have existed between the 12 disciples. Um, I can sometimes forget that these are not 12 identical men, okay? That Matthew himself was a tax collector, who probably wasn't very warmly received by the others in the group, at least not initially. Maybe they came to 
have more, more warm uh, relationship together, but probably not initially. And if that indeed was the case, it, it would have been in line with the way that tax collectors were generally treated in first century Judea. There would have not been anything out of the ordinary there. So, so with that reminder, let, let, let's listen to the parable that Jesus spoke. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So both the Pharisee and the tax collector in this parable proclaim about themselves that which would have been widely assumed to be true by, by everyone else. A typical Pharisee wouldn't have been like other men. He would have followed the law better than anyone else. Even though the Old Testament only required one fast per year, on, uh, on the Day of Atonement, Pharisees were known to fast twice a week, Monday and Thursday. It's been recorded in history. And so this Pharisee had done that. He would have tithed not just on his income, but, but everything that he had. Conversely, the tax collector probably had every reason to slump, his, slump with his eyes down toward the ground, not even looking up. Um, he would have been a sinner who wronged his God and his people throughout his, uh, through his actions. Now, interestingly, in the story, both men are standing apart from the crowd. Did you catch that? They're both standing separated from everyone else. The Pharisee stands apart, and, and I almost get this picture that, that implies that he's up front by the altar, kind of on display for all to see. Right, standing apart from everyone else in that way. The tax collector stands apart, and, and it almost implies that, that he's in the back, behind the crowd, just trying not to be noticed by anyone else. But what flipped this situation on its head was Jesus' declaration that the tax collector was justified by God, and the Pharisee was not. And again, because we are familiar with the entirety of the Bible, that statement from Jesus maybe isn't too shocking to us, but, but for the Jews who were focused upon law-keeping and who lived in that culture and in that context, that statement was ludicrous. Of course, the Pharisee would be justified by God. Look at all he was doing. Of course, the tax collector wouldn't be. Look at all that he was doing. It would have just made sense. In their view, there's no way the tax collector should enter the kingdom of God rather than this pious Pharisee. But what this, uh, what this parable reveals to us is an absolutely crucial piece of information regarding the kingdom of God. 
Those who are reliant upon their own righteousness to gain entrance into the kingdom will be left out. But those who, like the tax collector, throw themselves at the mercy of God, confess their sinfulness, will be brought in to the kingdom. You know, we kind of go back to resumes. The Pharisee's resume was one of great production value. He saw himself as bringing so much worth to the kingdom of God. Tax collector's resume was one of little production value. I mean, he saw himself bringing little worth to the kingdom of God. That's why he couldn't even look up. You know, when it comes to applying for a job, production value matters. It matters greatly. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, production value just doesn't matter. That's not what it's about. And, you know, when I, when I think about that, perhaps uh, with the Apostle Paul, w- one of the most fascinating things about the Apostle Paul is that he possessed both of these attitudes that we see at some point in his life. He possessed both of them. I, I mean, he studied under the, the famous rabbi Gamaliel. He was, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He kept the law over and above pharisaical standards. I mean, he was considered righteous according to the law. Uh, Even after becoming a believer, he labored harder, suffered more, kept a better attitude than anyone. I mean, we we read about some of that this morning in, in 2 Corinthians. So not only did Paul have every ability to take the posture of the Pharisee in that parable, That's exactly what he did prior to becoming a follower of Jesus. That was Paul's attitude. And yet, Paul would go on and and make statements in his writings like this. He would say, I am the foremost of sinners. He would say, I know nothing good dwells in me. Wretched man that I am. That was Paul that that said that. In coming to faith in Jesus... Rather than continue taking this self-righteous posture of the Pharisee, Paul freely admitted his sinfulness. I mean, he could have put together a resume far superior to anyone's, I mean, us included. Paul could have done that in an attempt to enter the kingdom of God. Yet he took the posture of the tax collector and put himself at the mercy of God. He came to understand, as as he famously wrote, that it is only by God's grace through faith that anyone is justified, that anyone is saved. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, as he would write, not the result of a self-righteous resume. And you can see how Paul came to that realization we talked last week about, uh, about true faith, how true faith is an active faith in God, which will show itself through our beliefs and our actions. Um, what we are talking about today precedes that. So it's not, it's not as if God waits to give us salvation until we validate our faith in him through our actions. It's not like God is saying, okay, well, I need to see something before before you can be given salvation, before you can be justified. We are saved and justified by his mercy, and then our actions flow out of that and and in response to that mercy. 
So the self-righteous Pharisee who is trusting in his works won't find himself in the kingdom of God. But the humble tax collector who is trusting in God's mercy won't find himself left out of the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus is driving home with this parable, that nature of his kingdom. And what I think then is, is, is very interesting in this chapter is that after he gives that parable, he, he, he showed us those two types of people, immediately they were both put on display by real life people in the scenes that followed. So, so look at what happened next. In Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Luke chapter 18, verse 15. It says, now they, were be, now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, when we, when we look at this scene, it's helpful to recognize the way in which children would have been thought of in that culture. In that context, babies, young children, they had no social status. They didn't contribute anything to society. In fact, uh, they were seen as a drain on society. Uh, you know, I fear that our culture today may be headed farther and farther down that path. And, and without going in-depth on that topic, let me just say we, we ought to stand firm against that way of thinking. We ought to proclaim the value and the worth of children through how we treat our children and how we speak about our children and how we invest in our children. But in that culture and in that specific situation, the disciples probably viewed those children as nothing more than a distraction or, or a waste of time from what Jesus was really doing with his ministry, right? There was nothing those children could do to add to Jesus' ministry. They couldn't give him anything of value. Yet, Jesus called out to them, and he brought them to himself. And then he went on to say that those who received the kingdom like a child would be the ones entering in. So the question is, what does Jesus mean by that statement? When he says, receive the kingdom of God like a child, what does Jesus mean there? And, and, and even though we might think about young children, and especially babies, as being innocent, we have to be careful about romanticizing the reality of things. It might, uh, well, well, little children possess a sin nature just like adults, right? Maybe it takes a little while to become visible, but it's there. It is there. So, so I'm not sure that we can say that to receive the kingdom of God like a child means to completely trust God because even little children don't always trust their parents. So I, 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 I'm not sure we can say that to receive the kingdom of God like a child means to be humble because even little children don't always act humble. 
I don't think we can say that to receive the kingdom of God like a child means to have gratitude for what we've, what we've been given because, again, we all know that's not always true of little children. But there is something that is completely true of a baby regardless of any sin nature being present or not. And this characteristic is one that begins to disappear the older and older a child gets. Dependency. Whether a child has a sin nature or not, they are fully dependent, the baby especially, fully dependent upon their parents. And that dependency kind of wanes as, as they get older. So to receive the kingdom of God like a child is to be dependent upon God. Like the tax collector, throw ourselves at God's mercy. It's to recognize that we can do absolutely nothing to get ourselves into the kingdom. That, that's receiving it like a child, being fully dependent. Now, 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 dependency will lead, I believe, to trust and humility and gratitude and those things that I mentioned, but but those things all flow from our dependency upon God. That is to be like a child. So the minute we begin to, uh, to elevate ourselves, look fondly upon our actions, swell up with pride, we've lost that, that childlike dependency that's necessary for the kingdom. The childlike dependency that is necessary to say, God, have mercy on me. And I'm looking up, but the tax collector couldn't even do that. It's looking down. God, have mercy on me. I have nothing that I can offer to you. So, so while a child will grow less and less dependent upon their parents as they grow and as time goes on, we ought to be growing more and more dependent upon our Heavenly Father. It should work the opposite of what we see with children. It's that childlike dependence upon him which opens us to his mercy, which allows us to receive his mercy into our lives. So we look at that scene, and, and the child is such a wonderful picture, kind of a real-life display of the tax collector in Jesus' parable. In the scene that comes after that, we are introduced to a rich ruler who is the picture of the Pharisee in, in Jesus' parable. So let's look at that scene next. Chapter 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? 
But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there's not one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So it starts with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you remember, this is not the first time we've heard this question in Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 10, an expert in the law asked Jesus that exact question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and in that setting, in chapter 10, it, we kind of get the impression that this, this expert in the law was trying to trap Jesus. But here, I, I don't think we get any indication of that. I, I, I think the ruler's question is authentic, and that's, that's my opinion. You're welcome to disagree with me, but I, I feel like it's an authentic question that he's asking. Um, so in hearing his question, Jesus, Jesus discerns that, that this man places a high value on his own actions, and he wants to know what further things must be done to enter the kingdom of God. And it seems like this ruler was maybe even present for the scene with the young children. He was probably there, it seems like, overheard what was going on. In a way, it's almost like he's asking Jesus, okay, so what do I need to do to receive the kingdom like a child? Like, Jesus, what am I lacking? Look over my resume. What, what more needs to be on here to be considered like a child entering the kingdom? And, and, and Jesus kind of plays along with the request and, and lists five of the Ten Commandments. And, and then, you know, so after stating that he was perfect in those areas, which seems like it was probably a misjudgment on his part, but he said he was perfect in them, uh, uh, the rich ruler was then confronted by Jesus with one more command. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, okay, you, you want to play that game? You want to prove your own worth? You want to earn your entrance into the kingdom? Go sell everything. Give it to the poor. And in, in, in making that statement, Jesus is addressing his lack of dependence upon God. I mean, if he was dependent upon God, then he'd have no problem giving away all his wealth. It's not like once you're rich, it means you can't give it away. I mean, <laughs> it's still a logical possibility. But because he's dependent upon himself, then the request from Jesus seems impossible. And Jesus hits the nail on the head, as he so often does with this guy. Because the man was dependent upon himself, he couldn't do it. He went away assuming he'd never be able to do what was necessary to enter the kingdom. And in a way, he's right. <laughs> in a way, he is completely correct that he can't do what is necessary to enter the kingdom. But he failed to grasp that in his inadequacy he would still be able to enter the kingdom of God because of God's mercy. And, and if he had dependence upon God's mercy, if he looked to God and God alone to provide that entrance. So, so for those who have much, <clears throat> for those who have much, the tendency is to become dependent on, on what you have. Um, uh, the tendency is to assume that you have what it takes <clears throat> to gain entrance into the kingdom. The tendency is to rely upon yourself. <clears throat> That's why Jesus said it's difficult. It's difficult for those with wealth 
to enter the kingdom. It's easier for the camel, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Um, sometimes you'll hear it say that there was this gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye, that it was so small that a camel could only get through it if it knelt down and took off all of its, uh, all of its cargo and things like that. Um, it's actually a myth. <laughs> there was, at the time of Jesus, for sure, there was no such gate like that in Jerusalem. What, what Jesus literally means is that it's easier for an actual camel to go through the actual eye of a needle. See, it's possible. If there was, if there was some gate that a camel could get through by kneeling down, and ta- that would be possible for the camel to go through the gate. What Jesus is painting is a picture that is impossible. It cannot be done by humans anyway. None of us can get a camel through the eye of a needle. That's why those listening said, well, then who can be saved? I mean, it's hopeless, right? I mean, that's why they said that. And then that's why Jesus responded, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Yeah, you can't get the camel through an eye of a needle, but, but with God, it's possible. It is impossible for a, a wealthy person or any person for that matter to enter the kingdom of God based on their resume. Only through our dependence upon God and the salvation that comes through his sacrifice on the cross that we'll ever enter in. That, that's the only way that it becomes possible. And so this scene ends with, with Peter speaking up like he typically does and, and proclaiming that that they themselves were dependent upon Jesus. I mean, Jesus, we've left everything. We've done that. You know, you told this guy to leave everything, follow you. Jesus, we did that. Here we are. And so Jesus responded with an affirmative statement that their dependence upon him was not misplaced. Wasn't misplaced. In both this life and the next, they'd be given all that they needed. Indeed, even in an abundance. And it wasn't because they'd earned it. It wasn't because they had proved their worth. It was solely because of their dependence upon God. That, that's why they would have all that was needed. When I, when I think about today's sermon in, in Luke 18, I, I think it's a great balance to last week's from Luke 17. As I said last week, we talked about how, how true faith is an active faith. In the words of, of James, faith without, uh, faith without works is dead. But, but in case we hear in that statement a, a declaration that our works have something to do with our salvation, with our entrance into the kingdom of God, then today's text pulls us back from that and says, no, no, that, that's, that is not correct. When it comes to our, our own posture before God, we ought to consider that of the tax collector and the children. Their, their faith was not in their ability to produce things for God, not in their ability to impress God or impress anyone else. Their faith was solely dependent upon God's mercy toward them. They were wholly dependent on him. Now, as I was thinking about this, you know, if, if, if I can kind of speak specifically to, to, to anyone in their 20s, 30s, or 40s, and, and, and I'm speaking to myself here too, I think we're in a dangerous season of life when it comes to dependence upon God. 
Um, uh, young, young children recognize their dependence. Um, I think older adults, due to the aging process, more and more recognize their dependence. But those of us in the ages that I just mentioned, I think we can be especially tempted to trust in ourselves. But we've got to recognize that danger and, and recognize the truth of the situation, that, that no matter how independent we feel, we cannot, in our own effort, secure entrance into the kingdom of God. We are utterly dependent upon God. And, and I'm not saying that it's only people in that age bracket that, that struggle with that. Um, if, I didn't, if that's not you, it doesn't mean you're free and clear of that temptation. But, you know, we're all dependent upon God. I, I just think some of us, maybe due to the season of life, can have a little, little tougher time recognizing that. Um, the, the level of righteousness needed to enter God's kingdom is far higher than any of us will ever achieve ourselves. Easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle. And that's why Jesus spoke that parable to those who considered themselves to be righteous. That's why he said those words. But we can't, we can't view our inability to become righteous ourselves as confirmation that we'll never enter the kingdom. Just because we can't do it ourselves doesn't mean all hope is lost, like that rich ruler that just walked away from it all. Instead, we have to allow that reality that we can't do it ourselves drive us to God and, and like the tax collector, proclaim full dependence upon God, stating, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what that's what the reality ought to drive us to, not to hopelessness, but to dependence upon God. And, and that dependence upon him will not end up being misplaced. I, I, I can promise you that. It will not be misplaced. Instead, it will lead to God's mercy being poured out upon us. It, it will lead to him exalting us and bringing us into his kingdom. What a blessing that is. I mean, we can't enter on our own. We can't reach the righteousness required. But when we come before God and say, be merciful to me, we put our hope and our trust in him, he brings us in. He brings us into his kingdom. He's done what is needed, and he shows mercy to us. That's so great. What a blessing. Let's stand before God this morning and give him thanks for that, and then... And then we're going to close proclaiming that God is the only one that can save us and bring us into the kingdom. Father, as we come before you this morning, um, we want to do so humbly. We want to, want to, like the tax collector, proclaim that we are sinners, that we are in full need of your mercy. Any resume that we might have with us. We just need to tear up and throw it away because we cannot enter on our own merit. God, would you help us to, to always remember that? That yes, we seek to be obedient to you and honor you with how we live and, and proclaim you in this world, but it has nothing to do with gaining entrance into your kingdom. It's all in response to your mercy that you have poured out upon us. 
And God, for any, any here who haven't come to that realization deep within themselves previously, I, I pray that today might be that day. And I pray that uh, they might just know, they would know that, that their works, their actions are not good enough, but that that's okay because we can throw ourselves at your feet and at your mercy. So I pray that that would happen. God, would you speak to all of us? Even if we've done that previously, may that be the continual posture of our lives, that we are fully dependent upon you that we don't seek to wrestle back that dependence for ourselves, but that we keep it given to you, trusting in you, finding our hope in you, our comfort in you, knowing that all things come from you. It's such a blessing to us. God, we thank you that you show us mercy, that you chose people who are sinners, who cannot attain the measure needed on our own. We thank you. We love you. And we continue to praise you in that reality now. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.